Hey, will you open up your Bible to John chapter 15 and stand with me when you get there? We're going to be reading today from John 15, 18 to 27. And uh, looks like most of y'all are home folks, so you know how we do. We read through the Bible and then we try to understand the Bible and apply it to our lives. And today we're going to be reading John 15, 18 to 27 and asking God to give us clarity about what he wants us to do with it. Of course, we believe that this is God's word. And so when we read it, he's speaking directly to us. And so I hope you'll listen with that in mind. Here's what God's word says. If the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they'll do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they've done this to fulfill the word that's written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you've been with me from the beginning. You all pray with me? Father in heaven, we come before you this morning thanking you for this word. I thank you for all these people who are gathered here to hear it. God, you know what's in each of their hearts today. You know, the crises that they brought with them, the worries and the cares. You know that the hate we're talking about is not theoretical for some of us, but it's something even this week we've been dealing with. And so I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would give me wisdom and clarity about the words that I should say, that you would anoint me and fill me up to preach your truth and not my own. Father, we ask for your help. Send us your spirit to understand and to respond faithfully. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You go ahead and keep that out. We're going we're gonna to get back to it here in just a second. Now, Jack Vinson was an elderly and experienced missionary when in the fall of 1931, he was imprisoned by Chinese communists. He'd been preaching in a little town called Yangjai-gi when an army of over 600 bandits surrounded the village, captured it, and imprisoned most of the inhabitants. There they sat, this missionary who'd gone to encourage the Christians there, and children and men and women, wondering what their fate would be. Overnight, the official government got word 
that this town had fallen to the communist bandits, and so they sent their own army to release the people. And in the chaos of the fighting, about 125 of the captives escaped, but 25 were left behind, including Jack, who was too old and frail to run. And so the communists, recognizing that their great plan to overthrow the city and capture all the inhabitants was coming to an end, start intimidating and mocking the missionary. One of the bandits comes over to Jack and he says, Are you afraid? And Jack says, No, I'm not afraid. And that's obviously not the answer he was looking for. So he pulled out his gun and held it to his head. He said, I'm about to kill you. Are you afraid? And Jack said, no, I'm not afraid. If you kill me, I'll go straight to heaven. And so with that, he pulled the trigger and shot him in the head, and they beheaded Jack Vinson that day. I was thinking about Jack Vinson and the thousands. I don't know if there's a a count. Could, Could we count all the Christian martyrs who've died in the history of the church? I mean, you start in the book of Acts with Stephen, the first named Christian martyr who was stoned to death by the respectable religious men of Jerusalem. Read about the great persecutions under the wicked Roman emperors. Read about the religious wars that plagued the middle-aged Europe. Read them all. Read about all these faithful martyrs who when persecution arose, remained faithful to Christ. And you start to recognize a few common themes. The thing that comes to mind first for me is the courage. Man, Jack Vinson looking down the barrel of a gun, courageous to the very end. Then you think about the faith that stands behind those brave acts of faithfulness. And they, they knew that death didn't have a hold on them. Oh, death, where... Is your sting, O grave, where is your victory? Because Christ has risen, we know that death no longer has a hold over him, and because we are in him by faith, it has no claim on us. So no, I'm not afraid to die. I know to be absent from my body is to be present with the Lord. Think about the faith that stands behind every courageous act of faithfulness. And I wonder to myself, quietly, I would never publicly say this on the stage in front of my church family. Uh, If I were in Jack Vincent's shoes... Would I have said, no, I'm not afraid? I, I think I know myself too well. I would have been very afraid, okay? Would have thought about my wife and my children and the life that I had thought of living, and, and I would have been afraid. Now, I want to be clear. I want us all to be on the same page. I hope you never find yourself in the position that Jack Vincent was in. Hope you're never rounded up by communists, put in prison, and get a gun held to your head. I hope you never face the kind of persecution that our brothers and sisters are facing today in China or Iran. I don't even want people to pick it outside of our church. You know, I don't want any bricks through our new windows. You know, just keep that to yourself and go somewhere else. I hope we never face any of that. And yet, if you look back over 2,000 years of church history. And if you take the words of Jesus seriously that we just read, you have to say that the peace that we've experienced in our lifetime, the relative calm that Christians have been enabled to live in in America, 
is pretty rare. It's the exception rather than the rule. Now, if we're honest, we have to come down on some variation of what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The circumstances may change from century to century and place to place, but sooner or later in your life, you're going to feel some discomfort because of your decision to follow Jesus. I don't know what form that'll take for you. I don't know what form it'll take for me. I don't know what form it will take for Central Baptist Church in Luling, Texas. But you get serious about walking with Jesus, and somebody's going to hate you for it. So this morning, I want to spend our time together working through this passage and trying to figure out what it means to be hated but hopeful. See, I'm convinced Jesus spoke these words for you and me, not just for the 11 disciples huddled around him the night he was betrayed. He's thought of us because he wants us to know that it's coming, that we live in an increasingly hostile world, and sooner or later, we're going to have to figure out how we're going to respond. And so this morning, this is what I want you to see, that though the world may hate us, followers of Jesus must bring his hope to the world. Though the world may hate us, followers of Jesus must bring his hope to the world. Now, y'all are very, either very attentive or you're, I've already lost you. So are you with me? If you're with me, say I'm with you. Okay, good. That's, that's good to know. Now, if you've been here over the past few weeks, we've been working our way through John chapter 15, trying to understand what Jesus was teaching his disciples right before he was crucified. Of course, we started up at the beginning. Jesus saying, I am the true vine, my father's the vine dresser, and you guys are branches. And any branch that abides in me bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I hope you've thought about that, been reflecting on it, been trying to figure out what it looks like in your life to abide in Jesus. Um, I think it's pretty simple. I think that what Jesus wants for you is to cultivate an attitude of dependency on him, where you're rooting your life in his words so that all that he did and all that he said becomes the lenses by which you examine your life. And then I hope you're learning to lift up your needs to him in prayer. You got any needs? I, I've got some needs. And so we need to learn to lift up our needs to Jesus in prayer. That's what it means to abide. Last week we saw that we're not just after an abiding relationship with Jesus. We're also after a community transformed by love. And that you and me have experienced the love of Jesus, and now we're called to love one another even as he loved us. And so that's what we're trying to do together as a church family. We just want to spread the love. That's all the world needs now is love. And yet, there's another party involved in the life that we've been called to live. There's the vertical. I want to abide in Jesus. There's the horizontal. I want us to love one another in a community transformed by the love of Jesus. But always, Jesus says, there's a world out there. And as you go about spreading the love, you can just about guarantee that sooner or later you're going to experience some hate. And so he prepares his disciples for that experience and teaches them how they're supposed to respond to it. And this is what I think he wants us to see. First off, it's obvious. We're going to be hated. He says in verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. Now, as a pastor, I've come to see that many families 
have their own sets of house rules. And what's appropriate for one family may not be appropriate for another family. Every family has the right to determine what goes in their house. But most families try to avoid this word, hate. It's a pretty strong word. You know, you don't want your kids going around saying they hate this and they hate that. And so to read it on the lips of Jesus is amazing. If the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. Hate's obviously not this mild dislike. You know, well, I prefer, I don't, they're not my favorite. It's not distaste. Hatred is something deeper than that. It's a deep-seated and permanent hostility from one person to the next. It means to have someone as your enemy and to treat them as such. Jesus says, if the world hates you, or, you know, when the world hates you, know that it also hated me. These are the kind of feelings that generate wicked and vile verbal attacks. Violent assault. The kind of thing that would lead somebody to hold a gun to a person's head and pull the trigger, or to throw rocks at them until they die, or to tie them up to a post and whip their back until the skin falls off and then crucify them on a cross. That's deep-seated, personal and permanent hostility. And Jesus tells his followers to watch out. It's coming. And here's why. He says in verse 19, The world hates you because I chose you out of the world. If you were of the world, the world would love you like you were one of its own. But I've chose you out of the world. I mean, Jesus looks at these 11 men gathered around him, and he sees two groups as, as if there's a line in the sand. And on the one side, you have the world, the great mass of unbelieving humanity who are far from God, living in open rebellion to him, who have seen what can be known about God from the world he's made and have a sense of God implanted within, and yet they rejected the creator and instead bow down and worship the creation. We're talking about the world apart from God, the world that John says loved the darkness and hid from the light. The world. And then, on the other side of the line, 11 quivering disciples. I mean, men with some messed up backgrounds, with spotty characters, certainly not godly deacons. Men who have pasts. And yet Jesus sees them differently than he sees the world. That he walked through the crowds and he called them out by name, hand-selected them to be his men, to be with him so that he could give them authority to cast out demons and to preach the gospel. On one side you've got the world and on the other side you've got the disciples and they're at odds with one another. The world hating disciples. See, as long as followers of Jesus remain indistinguishable from the people around them, everything's fine. As long as they go with the flow and don't stick out too much, everybody's fine. In fact, they are loved as one of their own. They fit right in. They're one of the gang. But then Jesus has to go and call them out and set them apart and give them an official title and give them a new way of life, and all of a sudden things change. The hate kicks in. 
You know, sociologists and philosophers would probably get real deep in the weeds on this, that everybody dislikes those who are different than them. Don't we get a little uncomfortable when people look different than us? People act different than we act? When they eat kind of different foods and believe different things? But this isn't that. This isn't hatred based on politics or on nationality or ethnicity or the kind of music you like or the kind of clothes you wear. Jesus isn't talking about the way we scapegoat people who are other than us. He's talking about something deeper and more theological. I like the way one commentator put it. He said, if their spiritual origin had have been from the world, everything would have been totally fine. But they had experienced a radical new birth. They'd been set apart and made different. And because of that, everybody knew they might be in the world, but what? They're not of it. And you can bet the world noticed. Y'all are different than us. And that's why they were hated. I mean, this is a principle, I think, that you probably can identify with. You know, every Christian who has ever lived has heard the same call of Jesus. If any man or woman would come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. I mean, a commitment, the commitment you made to follow Jesus meant that you were willing to leave behind everything. Like James and John, leaving behind their nets. Like the man who said, hey, I'm going to come follow you, but first let me bury my dad. First let me, first let me. And Jesus says, no. Nobody who puts their hand to the plow and then looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. When you made a commitment to follow Jesus, you made a commitment to be different. That every other allegiance and every other commitment that you had made in your life was done away with. You were wholeheartedly, single-mindedly following Jesus. And that's going to mean you're going to be different. I like the way the Apostle Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 4. This is one of these verses that now we probably don't think about enough, but it's Ephesians 4.17. He says, I say and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer, I really want you to think about that, that you no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Having become callous, they've given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you didn't learn Christ in this way. If indeed you've heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former way of life, you've laid aside the old self, which is corrupted, in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and you've been renewed in the spirit of your mind. You're different, aren't you? Isn't there something different about you now that you've decided to follow Christ? Haven't you laid behind one way of life and you've taken on a new, even though you're not perfect, nobody's perfect? Aren't you day by day being remade into the image of Jesus? Aren't you being transformed from one degree of glory to the next? Aren't you discernibly different from the people in your life who are far from God? I hope you are. I hope you're different, and I hope every day you're different than you were the day before. Because Jesus says, if you're not different, you still belong to the world. But if you are different, the world's going to hate you. And so when Christ calls you to follow him, 
you know that he's called you to be different. And by being different, number two, the world's going to hate you because the new life you're living exposes the world for what it is. It makes people uncomfortable. You should know this. You know, when, when people find themselves exposed to spiritual truth, they don't always know how to respond. They're uncomfortable. They squirm in their seats. They can't sit still and pay attention. They can feel the Holy Spirit of God persuading them and convicting them of their sin, and they want more than anything to get out from underneath it. That's the way it works. You see it everywhere you go. And Jesus says you should expect people to hate you for it. He said, remember in verse 20, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Now, I like Jesus quotes himself sometimes. He'll say, remember the word I've spoken. And sometimes you can go back and trace it out. And this is really easy, actually. This word that he spoke was just spoken a couple pages before in John 13, 16, where he was with his disciples in the upper room right as they were celebrating Passover together. And he took off his outer tunic and he tied a towel around his waist and he got down on his hands and feet and washed his disciples' dirty, muddy feet. He says, listen, if I'm your master and I've done this to you, you also should do this to each other. No servant is greater than his master. Now, I fully believe that the life Jesus lived is the pattern that you and I are supposed to pursue. That everything Jesus did, we're supposed to copy. We're supposed to walk in his footsteps and live as he lived. That means that we should radically serve one another, sacrificially, pouring out love for each other the way that he poured out his love for us. That's the good way to think about this saying. No servant's greater than his master. If I was willing to do this for you, you should do this for each other. But I want you to think about how this saying used in one context is radically altered when it's used in another. No servant's greater than his master. If they persecuted me, the master... What do you think they're going to do to you, the servant? That's pretty astonishing. I mean, of course, Jesus is talking about just the dogged pursuit of his enemies after him his whole life. And everywhere Jesus went, he preached this gospel of the kingdom, like we read about in Mark chapter 1. Jesus comes out of the wilderness. He says, the time's fulfilled. The kingdom of God's at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He performed mighty miracles, casting out demons and controlling nature and healing the sick. And each step along the way, of course, some people responded to him in faith. They saw him for who he was, and they said, yes, the time is fulfilled. We believe. I'm repenting of my sins. I want to be different. I'm leaving behind this way of life. I want to be new. And yet there was a great crowd of people who hated him for it. You know, he provided for them the clearest example anybody had ever had of truth. I'm talking about spiritual truth. I mentioned this already, but Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that if you want to know something about God, you can look out in the world and discover a few things. He talks about God's divine nature and his great power. And you look at the world and you see that, hey, there must be a designer. There must be a maker for all these things to fit so perfectly together. There must be a God out there. And yet, while that is plain to us, 100% of the time we reject it and we choose to draw the wrong conclusion. Wow, the world's great. The sun is awesome. How it comes around in cycles. Let's bow down and worship the sun. That's the wrong conclusion to draw from what God reveals in nature. I hope you know that, and I hope you're not a, a sun worshiper today. <laughs> but having rejected God's revelation in nature, God doesn't leave humanity left to fend for themselves, does he? He, he speaks. 
through the law and through the prophets. He clearly determines for his people how they're supposed to live, what he expects from them. You don't have to look up into the sky and wonder what God wants. He tells you right here, I want you to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want you to commit yourself to my way of life and offer sacrifices when you sin. And though God made it crystal clear for him, first on stone tablets and then through the prophets written down on many scrolls, the people of God went astray and rejected the things he'd said. And so finally, at the end of time, God sent his own son in the likeness of human flesh to perfectly reveal who God is. So that when Thomas says, hey, Jesus, we want to see the Father, Jesus says to him, hey, look, have you been with me so long that you don't understand? If you've seen, the fa- if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's no God somewhere hidden behind Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh, giving people a perfect glimpse of who he is. And because of that, Jesus says, look at verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Now what Jesus means by this is that the words he spoke, the times fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. You've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemies, but I tell you, you should love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. All the words he spoke cemented the sinfulness of the human heart apart from God. The world got the clearest revelation from God they could get, and they rejected him. I mean, just think about the way his own hometown welcomed him when he came back after his preaching tour in Capernaum. They hear him talking. They've heard the stories about his miracles, and they say, who is this, the carpenter? Mary's son? Where did he learn this kind of wisdom? Think about the scribes who saw him casting out demons. And said, oh, this man's not working by the power of God. He's possessed by Beelzebul. Think about the Pharisees who saw him interacting with tax collectors and sinners and said, this man sets aside the law. No, they, they heard the words Jesus spoke, and they rejected every last one of them. And because of that, Jesus says in verse 20, now they have no excuse. Verse 22, they have no excuse for their sin. They've heard the words directly from my mouth. They still want nothing to do with it. And then he says in verse 24, it's not just his words that accuse them, it's also his works. If I'd not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they've both seen and hated me and my Father as well. I mean, Jesus came providing the world a clear glimpse of who God was. And rather than falling on their knees... Rather than repenting of their sins and committing themselves to the way of Christ, they crucified him. The very words that should have brought them life ensured their judgment. It exposed them for who they really were. Well, they had the thick religious facade. They knew the scriptures. You think in them contained the words of eternal life, but it's they who testify to me. That's Jesus. They rejected him. He exposed them for the whitewashed tombs as they were. They looked great on the outside, but on the inside they were dead men's bones. He said, you're a pit of vipers. And when you commit yourself to following that kind of master, to falling in line behind him and walking the way he walked, living the way he lived, interacting with people the way he interacted with them, committing yourself to obedience the way he did, 
You best believe that he's going to be faithful through on his promises. And he's going to conform you perfectly into his image. He says that as you work out your own faith and fear and trembling, you're going to remember who's at work in you. That it's God who both wills and works for his good pleasure. And he won't give up the job. That he who started a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. So you think that you've committed yourself to serving a master who everywhere he went exposed religious people for the fake people they were and cemented their judgment and think you're going to get by scot-free? Thinking they're going to throw parties for us when we start speaking truth? Oh, thank you for pointing out my sin. That's very kind of you. Here, can I buy you a piece of cake? No, when you live the life Jesus has called you to live, you're going to expose people for who they really are. You know this, though. You start changing the way you live, and people point it out to you. Oh, come on, you don't... You always went out with us. What are you talking about not going out? We've always done this. It's not a big deal. No, but you've made a decision that you're going to be different now. And instead of saying, hey, that's great. You do you. You do what you feel like you need to do before God. No, they, they mock you for it, don't they? They heap scorn on you. They say, who do you think you are? You're a holy roller now. That's what we should expect. I like the way Paul says it again in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians Chapter 5, verse 8. You were formerly darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what's pleasing to God. That's what I want for my life. I want to try to figure out what pleases God. And if that means I need to be different, then God, you're going to have to make me different. Because I want to live a life that's pleasing to you. I know that's you. And so you keep reading, and it says, well, okay, then don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. But instead, just stay at home. Just practice your faith in the privacy of your own bedroom where you're never going to come against anybody who might think or live differently than you. No. Don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but just gather together in your church walls where everybody thinks like you and feels the way you feel about things. No. Don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in the secret, but all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. Jesus says, you're going to follow me. You're going to be different. And when you're different, you're going to expose the world for what it really is. So that's just peel back the facade like you bought a fixer-upper house. You decide the one thing you got to do is peel off that wallpaper from the kitchen. And so you go in there, and you've got the special tools, and you're spraying it down, and finally you peel away the glue that's been sealed on there for decades. And what do you find behind it? Worse wallpaper than the layer you removed. And so you go again. That's what God has called us to be. We're to live in the world as Christ's people and in so doing expose the world for what it really is. Don't be surprised when they hate you for it. Like cockroaches scattering when the lights come on. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, 
Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with this same purpose. Arm yourselves. Think about that. Are you armed with this purpose? Because he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you. You've had enough time. You've had enough time to live as ungodly people live. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. You've had enough time to do that. That's what Peter says. You've done it, been there, done that. You've had enough time. But now, but now, arm yourself with this purpose. I'm going to suffer to do the will of God. But no, then in all this, they're surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipations, and they malign you. But they'll give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they're judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. This is what Jesus says. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. It hated me first. Okay, and it only hates you because you don't belong to them. You're not like them. I've chosen you out of the world. By grace, you're different than you used to be. And now that you've committed yourself to the master whose words confirm the world and their sin and whose works condemn them to death, don't be surprised when you go around speaking the words of Jesus and living the life he's called you to live that they hate you for it too. Because everywhere you go, you're going to expose them for what they are. So what do you do? Jesus says, get ready. They're going to hate you for it. And you're like me thinking about Jack Vinson. Now, if I were in some remote village in China and there was a gun to my head and nobody was around, what would I do to get out of that situation? Another reason I bring that up is because I've never had a gun held to my head. But I have been in some pretty precarious situations where I felt like if I talked about Jesus openly in this moment, I'm going to feel a little discomfort. I'm going to, you know, maybe they're going to reject me. Maybe they're going to laugh in my face. These people don't care what I have to say about Jesus. They are lost. There's no hope for them. So I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. I'm going to retreat. I'm going to hide. I'm going to fly under the radar. I'm going to quiet down. I'm going to shut up. I'm just going to keep my mouth zipped. What about you? How, would you, how do you think about the scorn and hate that Jesus says the world's just ready to, to throw your way? I don't think he wants us to hide or give up. I think he wants us to respond by testifying to the hope that's in him, even though they hate us. That's what he says in verse 26. That's the only way I can really make sense of how Jesus abruptly shifts from the hatred of the world to the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 26, When the Helper comes, whom I'll send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he'll testify about me. And you'll testify also, because you've been with me from the beginning. See, I know Jesus had perfect knowledge. He, he could see the way the next 24 hours were going to play out. 
He knew that he was moments away from one of his good friends, Judas, walking into the garden with an angry mob with pitchforks and lanterns and torches. And he was going to be taken away, put on trial, beaten and crucified. And he knew that his own, his own right-hand man, Peter, was going to deny him three times. They're going to say, hey, you, you've been with him. And Peter's going to say, no, no, I've never been with him. I don't know what you're talking about. You come to him again. Yeah, you're from Galilee. You had to have been with him. No way. Third time. Yeah, you, you, I know. I saw you with him. I swear to God, lady, I've never seen that man in my entire life. Jesus knew that when the pressure was applied and the heat was cranked up, they were going to cave. And so he wanted to provide them some kind of encouragement, some kind of hope that when the world hated them, they could be his agents of blessing, that he was going to send them a gift, the Holy Spirit. It was going to come directly from the Father and was going to take up residence with them to empower them for the ministry he'd set them apart to do. It was going to comfort them by assuring them of God's faithful presence with them everywhere they went so they would know not just theoretically, but personally and intimately, that God loved them and was with them. That he was going to give them the words to say, so that whether they were in front of angry mobs of religious leaders, whether they were in front of kings who held their life in their hands, they were going to know the exact words to say. And so Jesus is going to go into more detail about the Holy Spirit in chapter 16, but right here as he's talking about hatred, he tells them that when the Holy Spirit comes... He's going to testify to Jesus, and they're going to testify. I think this is similar to what Jesus says in Acts chapter 1. After the resurrection and before he ascends into heaven, he tells his disciples, wait for the promise of the Father, and you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. That he knows the task is going to be great. The world is going to hate them, but he has sent them out to declare the good news. That's why when the first martyr, Stephen, one of the deacons, was preaching the gospel and the Sanhedrin rounded him up and put him on trial, that as they prepared to stone him, he looked up to heaven, and the Bible hardly ever says this, says the Bible, the, his face looked like the face of an angel. How did Stephen have peace when the world hated him so much? The Spirit of God. He's a man full of the Holy Spirit. How did these apostles who all but one, church history tells us, met an unnatural death? What motivated and led them to take the hope of the gospel to the ends of the world? It was the helper of the Holy Spirit who gave them the words to say. Listen, when it comes to me and you, thinking about the hate we're going to receive, we don't have permission to sit down, to keep quiet, to shirk the responsibility. Jesus has called us to be different, and in so doing, we're going to expose the world for what it is. But he's given us his spirit who's going to enable us to speak the truth, not shrink back. That's our calling. Now, I don't know, you probably see the reports like I do. Um, this past week, the Pew Research Center, who does all kind of polling on religious affiliation in America, 
came out with an update of their religious affiliation poll. And more people than ever claim to have no religious affiliation. And that's, you know, you, you've met people who used to be Christians but now don't know if they believe in God. So that's probably not surprising to you. What caught me off guard was the projection they made for the next 30 years of America. I know I'm, I'm 33 today. I won't even be retired in 30 years. Ain't that sad? But they say in 30 years, Christianity will be a minority religion in America, which is fine. Christianity is a minority religion over the face of the earth. That's not a particular problem. What is problematic about it is the way so many Christians lose their minds over the slightest discomfort for their faithfulness today. And you think about what the Christians of 2050 might be like. They'll, they'll be hated for their faith. You know, we're, we're dealing with kiddie stuff in 2022. Can you imagine what another 28 years of moral and spiritual decay could do to our country? Can you imagine what it could do to our churches? Churches that are closing their doors all the time who don't have the financial resources to pay a pastor and not even to keep the lights on. What will happen when people go to work and they're singled out as being the only Christian in their workplace? When they're known for their backwards beliefs, their ancient superstitions, right? What will we do? I hope we'll be like Jack Benson. I'm not afraid. Death has no hold on me. I've been crucified with Christ. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. CBC, you and I live in the greatest time there's ever been to be a Christian. Because it's so clear where the line is between the world and the people of God. I hope that you've heard Jesus' words to you today. If the world hates you, don't be surprised. They hated him first. I want to ask our band to come, and as they do, I want to invite you to bow your head with me and I want to ask you three questions this morning as we prepare to leave three questions for you to personally pray through first question I want you to think about this morning is this do I need to repent of a false view of my faith do I need to repent of a false view of my faith? A, a view that says following Jesus means that life's going to be easy. It says following Jesus won't be tough. Do I need to repent?
I wonder, do you need to renew your commitment to follow Jesus? Even when it is tough. Even when the world hates you. When your family mocks you. When your classmates sneer. Maybe you need to say a prayer, Jesus, you know I have shrunk back because of fear. Will you help me by your spirit to testify to you even when it's tough? I wonder this morning, do you need to resolve in your heart this week to be different? Maybe there were things that were brought to mind during our sermon this morning that you know shouldn't be part of your life. You've had enough time to do those things. Why don't you make a commitment in your heart right now before the Lord to be different?